morning, and let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1 this morning. Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We begin a study of Isaiah tonight, and uh, it contains one of the great... Guys, don't go up the aisles just yet. contains one of the great verses uh, in the Bible, and I wanted to take a look at it uh, in, uh, this morning. And uh, so... Isaiah chapter 1. Gentlemen, you can proceed. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And uh, just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. And even if you sit and you say, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm not, not going to bother them. No bother. Just wave to them and get a Bible and it'll already be marked to the passage we'll be studying today. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this morning. Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 18, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Aren't you thankful? Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's a living word that will outlast and outlive the heavens and the earth. Thank you that it's a revelation of your heart, Lord. We wouldn't know what you were like if we didn't have your word. We wouldn't know your truth, your wisdom, your ways, Lord. We wouldn't know anything of the life that we know apart from you speaking to us through your word. We pray for those of us who have known you, Lord, for a week or many, many long decades, wonderful decades. And we ask that you would speak to us from this passage today. And we pray, Lord, for those that stand before you that have never yet trusted in your Son for the forgiveness of your sins. We ask that you'd speak specifically to their heart and to their mind today. You are their creator. You are the lover of their souls. They don't know it yet, Lord, but you are. And we pray that that light would go on for them today and they would come into relationship with you. We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, God is addressing the sin and the rebellion of the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of the prophet Isaiah. And the scene that is kind of painted before us, you almost have to put yourself Uh, in this scene to understand the chapter. It's one of a courtroom. So envision yourself in a a courtroom and where you have the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, is the defendant in this courtroom. God is the prosecuting attorney. Uh, Never a good thing to have We're all going to face God either as Savior or as judge, and we never want to face him as our judge or prosecuting attorney. So Judah is the defendant. God is the prosecuting attorney. 
and the heavens and the earth are called on by God to constitute the jury to listen to the case that he lays out against Judah. And in chapter 1, God very, very graphically and very unflinchingly lays out the sin of Judah, their rebellion against him, their guilt before him. In verse 4, he describes them as completely wicked. He says, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, They've forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backwards. Then in verses 5 and 6, he describes them as completely infected with sin. A very graphic description of the totality of the infection. They're infected from top to bottom, head to toe, inside and out. And then in verse 9, he likens both the rulers of Judah and the people of Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah were, uh, in the Bible, those two cities are synonymous with sin and wickedness and judgment. And as a result, he tells us in verses 15, 11 through 15, he declared that he hated their sacrifices, he hated their worship services. He hated their prayers. All of them were an abomination to him. I tell you, it didn't take God very long to establish their guilt before the entire universe. Didn't take them 66 chapters which make up the book of Isaiah. Didn't even take them one chapter. He did it in a mere 17 verses. And when he gets to that place in verse 17, just when you think God is about to lower the boom on them and deliver the knockout punch and wipe them out. Instead, he extends an invitation to them. And he says, come now. That literally means to go, to walk. And God is speaking to the kingdom of Judah. And he says, let's you and me Let's take a walk, and I want to talk to you about something. And the something that he wanted to talk them, to them about, that he wanted to reason with them about, was their sin. And he doesn't stop there. God then extends to them the offer of his forgiveness for their sins. And he invites them to receive that offer that if they would repent of their sins, though their sins were like scarlet, he would make them white as snow. And the word scarlet in the original language, it carries the idea of double dyed. I don't know how many of you, I'm a product of the late 60s and 70s in my youth. And so we used to dye stuff back in those days. Sometimes when you're a little poor, you might get a shirt that you didn't like and you wanted to get a little extra life out of it. Maybe it was white or whatever. So you'd go and you'd get those writ dyes at the store. And maybe you'd dye something and it would turn kind of a... a, Well, it didn't exactly come out red. It came out pink. So you would double dye the shirt in order to get crimson, in order to really get a deep color... Uh, out of it. And so 
when he speaks of their sins being as scarlet, there's the idea of being double dyed, the dye where the dye has become a part of the very fabric uh, that has been dyed in the dye, where it's humanly impossible to remove the dye. It's done. It's set in the cloth. And we're not talking about a garment where there's a small spot in the corner or there's a slight smudge somewhere on it. It's double-dyed. And so we're not talking about sinners who have sinned occasionally in their lives. They have a spot or two or a smudge or two of sin in their lives. This is an offer that God makes to sinners who are double-dyed. The sin has penetrated deeply into their lives and into the very fabric of their lives. It's become their master. It has become their identity in life. And he declares that if they will turn to him, he will take and make their sin, forgive them and make it white as, make them as white as snow. And in the scripture, snow is spoken of as an example of complete cleansing. It's a picture of purity. And then he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 19 that he would then go on and lead them into a good life and into a blessed life. But he says in verse 20, the choice was theirs. He wouldn't force them to receive his forgiveness. He wouldn't force them to repent or to turn. And if they refused to turn and rejected God's offer of forgiveness, God is very straightforward. He told them that they would then be responsible for the judgment that would come as a result of their refusal. And today God wants to have very much the same conversation with every single person in this world, every single person in this room. He wants to reason with us about our sin. He wants wants us to know about his forgiveness, his offer of forgiveness and salvation. And he wants us to know of his offer to then lead us into an abundant life, but also to warn some of us that we will be responsible for the decision that we make concerning the offer of his forgiveness. God is is a reasonable God. That's why he calls on them to reason with them. And God's diagnosis of each and every one of us as human beings, as being sinners, is a reasonable diagnosis. The Bible declares that every single person in this world is a sinner. That's God's assessment of us. That's his reasoned assessment of us. The Bible says, for all have sinned. The Bible says further that there is none righteous. No, not one. Not Opie, not Goober, not Aunt B, not even Andy was righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. Very often people get offended uh, when you tell them that they're sinners by God's estimation. And most often it's because they tend to think of the term sinner as being a label or a tag that you put on someone who is a notorious wrongdoer. 
uh, somebody that's slightly worse than I am. So the term sinner in our culture is reserved for bank robbers or for murderers. But the Bible doesn't define it that way. God defines sin as being some, as something that is simply less than perfect. And our English word sin comes from the Greek word hamartia, which means simply to miss the mark. To sin is to miss the mark. What is the mark? The mark is a bullseye on a target. And to miss the bullseye, to miss perfection, is to sin. And to be a sinner is to have been less than perfect by God's standard, even once in our life, in our actions, in our deeds, in our words, in our thoughts, in our motives, in our sins of omission, where we knew to do good and we didn't uh, do the good that we ought to have done. That's the definition of sin. Well, I think knowing the definition of sin biblically, then who in the world can argue with God over his assessment of us as sinners? No, it's a reasonable assessment. And there are many people who then deal with this definition of sin and God's defining of them as sinners in this way. Instead of repenting and realizing, I've got a problem with God here, and God's got a problem with me that he wants to fix. So rather than repenting of my sin and putting my faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, most often people will grant God the point. They will say, well, I am a sinner by that definition. But then rather than taking their sins seriously, they then comfort themselves in the fact that everyone else in the world is a sinner too. So what is God going to do? Is he going to judge all of us? Yes. He is going to judge all of us. There is no comfort in numbers on this particular issue. God is forced to judge us if he is forced to do so. You see, the worst news is not that we are sinners, but that there's a consequence for our sin. We're told of that consequence in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. I read the first half of the verse earlier. Let me read the entirety of the verse to you now. For all have sinned, but then Paul went on to say, and fall short of the glory of God. So our sin has separated us from the very thing that we've been created for, the glory of God, the glory of a relationship with God. And without being engaged in the single great thing that we've been created for, and that is a relationship with God, then until I'm engaged in that relationship, there will always be the sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. And the reason that we feel that is because we're, until we're engaged in the relationship that we've been created for, there is something rather significant that uh, we uh, have this sense that we are missing and we are missing. And there is something more to life until we're engaged in that relationship. But the Bible also teaches that there's a further penalty attached to our sins. 
not just separation from God, but a justice penalty. Again, in the book of Romans, Paul wrote and he said, for the wages of sin, what does sins earn us? What's the paycheck, the wage of sin? The wages of sin is death. That's what my sin deserves, eternal judgment. Some people argue about it. They want to complain about it. Maybe that's you this morning. I'm not going to argue with you about it. I'll tell you, I don't argue with it at all, that the wages of sin would be death. Sin has ruined this earth, and God will not allow sin to ruin heaven and make a hell out of heaven. In fact, when I became a Christian and I finally got done with my sin-filled and my selfish life, I desperately wanted a life that was different from the one that I was living. I desperately wanted that a difference there. And I'll tell you, I was relieved to discover that both God and heaven were so holy and so different from my sin and the mess of this world that even one sin in my life disqualified me from knowing God and disqualified me from ever entering into heaven. That didn't make my heart sink not one bit. I was thankful that there was someone, God himself, and some place that hadn't been tainted and ruined and spoiled by sin. There's nothing unreasonable at all about the fact that God should, or that man should one day give an account for his sin and his wrongdoing. It's not unreasonable at all. We do it all day, every day, in every city of the United States of America and virtually every city around the world and the judicial systems of the world where crime and wrongdoing is routinely judged and penalties meted out, there would be a revolution in the world if that judicial system ceased to do what it's designed to do in the human condition. And God is no different from the institution of government that he's instituted in the world. But let's not stop there. Let's move from the bad news to the good news because that's what God does here. In Jesus, the Bible teaches us, God offers us a reasonable salvation. People want to determine their own salvation. I believe that I end up in heaven on the basis of this, on the basis of that. People come up with all manner of ideas about how a person can get into heaven, how a person ought to get into heaven. But if you take in all of these self-originating, man-originating, ideas and concepts and thoughts about our own salvation and forgiveness, they cannot, cannot bear the weight of even man's reason, 
let alone God's reason. God offers us in Jesus a reasonable salvation. You see, God faced a dilemma in providing us with the forgiveness of our sins. In the words of the Bible, this is the dilemma that he faced. How could he remain just and holy and still be the justifier of sinful man? He loves us. He wants to save us. He wants to justify us. But if he simply says, well, you know, sin is no big deal. Let's just forget about it. God could do that just like people want him to do that. He could do that. But if he did, he wouldn't be just. A penalty has to be paid for wrongdoing. A penalty has to be paid for sin in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. The Bible puts it this way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But as sinners, we are disqualified from doing so by virtue of our own sin. A sinner cannot save himself any more than a drowning person can save himself. And so what's the solution to the dilemma? And there is only one solution. God was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross of Calvary because it is there that because of Jesus' sinless life, he became the propitiation, the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. The Holy Spirit put it this way in the book of Hebrews. He, speaking of Jesus, has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. It is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows God a perfectly holy God to save ungodly sinners and still remain just in doing so. And when a person puts their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they're not only forgiven of their sins, the Bible teaches, but a perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is then put to their account. So that when God then looks at you for the rest of your life, this side of heaven, and for the rest of eternity, he never again sees the sin of our past. He never sees the unrighteousness of our life. All he sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been put to our account. In the words of the New Testament, it's been imputed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he that is the Father made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. Romans chapter 4. And therefore it was accounted to him 
for righteousness. Speaking of Abraham. Not was it, now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us, also for us, it shall be imputed, that is, righteousness to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. It's a wonderful thing to stand before you today in my own personal relationship with God. I know you feel it in your heart as well. And to realize that when God looks at me, he no longer sees even one of the terrible things that I've done in my life or that I've thought or that I've said. He doesn't see me in my own righteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ put to my account because of my faith in his Son. Where in this world... Do we take our guilt? I believe the assessment of the director of a mental hospital in the United States some time ago who declared, if I had a cure for guilt, I could release 90% of the patients in this hospital with the guilt of sin the guilt of our past what it does to people on a daily basis what parts of our life we have to shut off and shut down in order to silence our guilt and our shame Where do we take our guilt? What do we do with our guilt when our sins are like scarlet, when they are double-dyed? Where can that kind of a person go for forgiveness in this world? To people, have fun. Is there anyone we can go to openly with our guilt? Is there anyone who will forgive us? And amazingly, the answer to those questions is found in this passage. And the one that we can go to is God, the God of the Bible, and His Son, Jesus who is the Christ. Don't run from God. In the time that he convicts you and me of our sin. It's almost counterintuitive. If we didn't have God's word here sitting right before us in his book and we're faced with the greatness of our sin in the way that Judah was, double-dyed our sin, And somebody said, where do you take your guilt? Where are you going to ever receive forgiveness for what you've done, what you've said, what you've thought, what you've done against people, what you've done against God? And we might be able to think of one or two human beings that might forgive us if they knew all that we've ever done or thought 
or said. But in our minds, we would think the one person we must never go to, the one person we can never run to in this condition is God. And God says, change your thinking about that. I am the one to run to. I am the one who will forgive. I am the one who will cleanse. I am your answer. I am the solution to your guilt. The very place that you think you can't come, the very one that you think you can't approach, is the very one that holds the solution and possesses the forgiveness that you so desperately, desperately need. I think that sometimes within our culture you have one group of people who look and say, I don't know where I can go. I don't know what I can do with my double-dyed sin. And then you have another group of people who haven't come to grips with how serious their sin is for whatever reason. How serious their sin against others has been. How serious their sin is in the eyes of God. And I think that sometimes people can get so used to Christianity. Raised in a Judeo-Christian ethic within this nation. And they get so used to hearing the gospel. of forgiveness and salvation. They hear it over and over and over again until we can just begin to take it for granted or we begin to think that sin is no big deal if God is so free with his forgiveness or we can begin to think in this very self-focused culture, this very... Selfishness nurturing culture. We can even begin to think, I deserve to be forgiven. God will forgive anyone. It's no big deal. Forgiveness is nothing. But it is a big deal. And everyone who has ever felt the full weight of their guilt come crashing down on them and then went on a search for real forgiveness in a fresh start and found it in Jesus will tell you so. Verse 18 is a marvel. It is holy ground. When you stop and you think about how many men and women through the ages have been given hope by this one verse that God would forgive them of their sins. No matter how bad they are, no matter how many they are. And that God will then release them from the torture of their guilt and then further to fill them with new life and with peace to realize that no one has sinned so greatly that they're beyond the forgiveness of God. And that includes you and each one of us in this room. Again, it's counterintuitive. 
We think that God is the last one a person like me can come to. But God is the very one that we need to come to. And he loves us and he wants us to do so. If we will repent and put our faith in Jesus, that isn't the end of things, but it's the beginning of a rich, full, abundant life. Someone may say, what will happen to me if I give my life to Christ, put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins? What happens to me afterwards? And this is much of what God is speaking of in verse 19. As he declares there, Jesus in the New Testament described the life that he leads every Christian into after they've received the forgiveness of God. And he describes that life as an abundant life. He says, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Physical life, mental life, emotional life, spiritual life, abundant. And Christ provides it. And in verse 20... Each of us is responsible for the decision we make concerning God's forgiveness and offer of salvation. God never forces a single person into heaven. And he never forces a single person into hell against their own will. Every one of us chooses our eternal destination. Every single one of us does that. And how do we determine our eternal destination, whether it be heaven or hell? It's based on what we do with Jesus. John the Baptist declared concerning Jesus, John chapter 3, he said to his disciples, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 5, he said, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not received the testimony that God has given of his Son. We live in one of the nuttiest places in the whole world. I'm not talking about Modesto. I'm talking about Keys. No, I'm not. God bless you if you're with us from Keys. I'm talking about the United States of America. Personal responsibility is so out of fashion within our culture. Nobody takes responsibility for anything. Anymore, it seems like. There's so much blame shifting on virtually every level within our society. So much excuse making. But before God, there won't be any of that. It will be all about what we have done with His Son. That will determine where we spend eternity. And we will be personally responsible for that decision, as we ought to be. 
The single greatest thing that a human being can do to bless God is to put their trust in his beloved son. And the single greatest sin that a person can commit against God, the single greatest wound a person can inflict upon God is to reject his son and to count his sacrifice and his death upon the cross is nothing. The writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way. He said, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. God has put his son and the death of his son and the shed blood of his son between every single person and hell. You can almost, like if you're in a house and you're walking from a hallway into a room and you've got this doorway and hell is on the other side of the doorway and Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, his body is at the foot of that doorway. A person has to walk right over him. Count him as nothing. His blood is nothing. His sacrifice is nothing to end up one day in hell. Come to a reasoned agreement with God this morning concerning the seriousness of your sin, concerning the forgiveness that he offers you, concerning how high the stakes are, concerning what you do with his son. And allow me just once again to repeat his offer to each one of us in verse 18. Come now, God says. To the double died, he says. Come now. and Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Amazing. You would never have guessed it of God. Here are these folks totally messed up and God is offering them complete forgiveness if they'll just repent of their sin and turn to him. Imagine being in a court of law where the judge and the jury and the prosecuting attorney are all in that place, and there you are as the defendant, as God has done with Judah here, and he lays out that case. I mean, the the person is completely guilty in that court of law, and then to have the judge and the prosecuting attorney stand up and make this kind of an offer to that person. That person would be crazy, crazy, not to take that offer. 
the only reasonable thing to do with this kind of an offer concerning our own sin and our own eternities is to receive it from God by putting our faith in his son this morning. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they're going to be up here to pray for anyone that comes up that needs prayer. But they're also going to be up here so that you, if you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you don't know that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven to come and pray with them to give, put your faith in Christ and to receive the forgiveness that God describes in this verse. That's what Christianity is all about. You may be completely new to the environment of a church. You say, let's go down there. I mean, uh, mom and dad have been bugging us about it or our neighbor or our classmate or whatever and we'll just go down and let's go see what one of those places is like. And you don't have any idea. Or maybe you have the idea that it's just a place that people come every week and sit in a big room and listen to somebody talk. But it's not about that. It's about a God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin that you could never pay so you could be forgiven of your guilt and begin a relationship with him, the relationship you've been created for. That's what it's all about. Have you done that? Has that happened in your life? Whether you come from a religious background or pagan background, has that happened in your life? And if it hasn't, then today's the day to receive God's forgiveness in your life. And then next week, you'll come into this room or a room like it, and you'll sit and you'll listen. But now the service will be about something entirely different at that point, and that is teaching you about the new life that you've begun as a Christian. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation for every person. Why? And the idea is don't wait another day to be saved. And the reason is, is because today is the only day you and I have. We don't have tonight. We don't have tomorrow. We don't have next week. You don't possess that. You possess what you have. You possess right now. And so God says, use your right now in the way that you need to use it concerning the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. And that is to put your faith and your trust in his Savior. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for the greatness of your forgiveness. We would never write verse 18... In the Bible, we wouldn't write it on a piece of binder paper. We would never presume this of you. We would never believe this about you, except that you have told us yourself. 
Thank you, Lord, for the greatness of your grace, the greatness of your love, to be able to sacrifice your son, to provide us with an answer to our guilt and the forgiveness of our sin. We are humbled, Lord, by your love, by your grace, by our Savior, Lord. And we thank you personally from our individual hearts, Lord, for the forgiveness that you have extended to each of us, Lord. Double-dyed in sin. Thank you, Lord, for the righteousness of Christ put to our account. Thank you for the completeness of your forgiveness that you have separated our sin for eternity from us as far as the east is from the west. We are humbled, Lord, by that grace. We are thankful for the sacrifice of our Savior. And we praise you from our hearts today. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.